Hello and welcome to Talking Law podcast brought to you by Women in the Law uh, UK. My name is Sally Penny. I'm a barrister at Kenworthy's Chambers in Manchester. Talking Law interviews leaders in law and this month is no different because we have Jamie Hamilton, Queen's Counsel, who's a barrister in Manchester. Jamie, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Jamie, what's your journey to the bar? My journey, I suppose, started when I was about nine years old and had an operation on my leg, which meant that I had an awful lot of time off school and needed to be entertained in the afternoons. And at that time, not revealing how old I are, but probably late uh, 70s, there was a series on ITV called Crown Court, which was half an hour in the afternoon, and it would be a dramatised trial from start to finish. And I watched it, and I saw the people in the wigs and gowns, and I thought to myself, that looks like the sort of job I wanted to do. And as I got older, I realised that the skills such as I had, uh, the abilities that I had probably matched that job. And I also realised that I became fantastically interested in what makes up a Crown Court trial, which are the people involved and the facts of it. It's a lot less to do with the law, although I'm not saying that that means that criminal law is easy. The law plays a big part in it, but the reality of it is it's about what people do particularly what people do to each other. And over time, I have become fascinated by that. We get a real insight into a slice of life a lot of other people don't get to see. We get involved in people's lives at the time when they're most desperate, whether they be the victim of an offence or the defendant. And I am fascinated by the stories that it brings up. And so that combined with what turned into be a real thing of public speaking for me, combine the two things of being gobby and nosy and I like it. <laughs> and did you know anybody in, who was a barrister or in the legal profession no, when you decided to, when you were watching a television programme? No, my sister-in-law, she qualified to be a solicitor at about the same time that I qualified to be a, a barrister having made a, a slightly later change in her career. But up to that point, no, nobody in our family had been anything to do with the law, certainly not on the right side of it. <laughs> and so what was your journey to becoming? Did you go to university? Yeah, so I went. I was at a, um, a local comprehensive school in Stockport where I did my then O-levels and A-levels and went to Aberystwyth University to read law and then went on from there to the Intercourt School of Law, which was the only place that did the bar course in uh, that time in London and pupillage, first six in London. And in fact, had all 12 months of my pupillage in London but um, I left after my first six to take up a place in Chambers in Manchester for my second six. Well, you've been at the bar for 25 years. 26 years this year, yeah. Yeah, so have you been here since? Then? So I've been, in, I've been in 9 St John Street. 9 St John Street had just moved premises just before I joined them, and we've been in that building now for 27 years. Wow. Crikey. That's really impressive. C- can I ask you then, in that duration, you've remained a criminal barrister where others and others that we've interviewed on this podcast have changed or become you know, specialised in dual areas. Why is it that you've stayed with crime, with ups, its ups and downs on fees and uh, and so on? The, there have been times when I've been tempted to and there have been times when I've been advised to. And I like to think the advice was friendly advice and not Hamilton get out of crime, you know, good at it. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier on. It, it It's about the stories and the the people and the facts. And so for me, being a barrister has not been the end game. It's being a barrister practising in crime. And I very much came to the view that if I wasn't doing crime, 
I'd look for something else outside of being... It wasn't about being a lawyer, a barrister. It was about being a criminal barrister doing criminal advocacy in criminal cases. Even to the extent that... And I don't want to put off anybody who's thinking of instructing me in something regulatory, but I really see the the joy of the job that I do is doing what I think of as, as proper crime. Some people say dirty crime, in front of juries, day in, day out, doing the advocacy in a criminal case where wrongs have been done by people. Mm. Well, can I ask you then, just flowing from that, um, what has been sort of your greatest case, if you like, and your greatest personal achievements? One of the things that I think is greatly undervalued uh, of practice at the bar it's not the great triumphs in the Court of Appeal. It's not the great triumphs necessarily always in a trial. Mm. I have really enjoyed, and I'm, I am missing a little bit now I'm in silk, it's the plea in mitigation that does uh, the job and makes a difference. And there are so many people that will do a plea in mitigation without really thinking about it, without really trying to persuade the judge of something. And some of my best days in court have been when I have come away and I have heard the judge repeat what I've said in mitigation. So they're not glory cases, they're not the famous cases. It's the cases where you feel like you've really made a difference in somebody's life. And it's one of the last things I did uh, in my junior practice was a plea mitigation and a committal for sentence for somebody who had been caught selling drugs at part life and they had done everything they could they were of good character and they had done everything they possibly could to already rehabilitate themselves before they came to be sentenced all the guidelines would say they had to go to custody and we persuaded the judge to keep them out and that sort of thing that sort of intervention in somebody's life is a is a great success so i've been in good cases i've been in the court of appeal Mm. i've argued in front of Brian Leveson and had good days in court. Yeah. But it's the making a difference in people's lives, which are the the triumphs. Which are really life-changing, aren't they? Um, Can I ask you then, why is it that you've become, you've taken so... Oh, no, you didn't answer the other question about um, any personal achievements, because you've had several pupils. Yeah, personal achievements, and undoubtedly somebody would probably think, I would say, well, it's taking silk, but it's not, it's my three pupils. Um, I've had three pupils... Louise, now her own judge Brandon, which makes me feel really, really old. Uh, Robert Smith. <laughs> Maybe you my, are. <laughs> I am old. But Robert Smith, my middle pupil, who was about to become a people master, uh, people supervisor himself. And Fiona Wise, who is my final pupil. Uh, I would Anybody who's a barrister out there who's not had a pupil, I would say do it because yeah. it's a fantastically rewarding experience. You learn so much from them and about yourself in doing it. And I've had the, the great thing of all three of them are fantastic and firm friends of mine. So the relationship that I developed with them is a very special one. And helping somebody and seeing it come into fruition where they have a successful career at the bar and, you know, with Louise uh, becoming a circuit judge, yeah. couldn't be prouder of them. And I'd like to blink I played a little part in their achievements. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll ask. I think yeah. Louise is coming on the podcast later. We'll ask her. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. That's really, really brilliant to hear. Uh, tell me, why did you take Silk then? Loving the the bar as you are, enjoying crime, what's the difference from being a junior to now taking Silk, being Queen's Counsel for those of our non-legal listeners? Well, the, the big difference is, and I had 
you know, quarter of a century had been at the junior bar. It's a long time. And it does involve a huge amount of time effort. Yeah. So, I mean, you'll know, criminal practitioner, you are in court every single day. Uh, You can have a diary that's got 20, sometimes up to 40 trials in it, lots of which you won't actually be able to get to yourself all of which you've got to manage and juggle. Yeah. Uh, and that it becomes a point where the pressure of the workload just by quantity is is quite a thing. And uh, the year before I took Silk, I'd actually been very fortunate that I had a couple of quite big cases that both required and afforded me to be able to take some time out of court to prepare. And I realised that I quite liked that I quite like having the space to prepare the bigger work rather than as I've been doing maybe for five years before in between a big multi-handed mini defendant trial yeah I'd been carrying on doing sort of the more knock around trials in between Uh, and taking silk means you get that pressure taken off you and then it's a different type of pressure because then you are preparing more serious work sometimes more supposedly in inverted commas complicated work yeah. Uh, but you get the time to do it. You get the time to focus on really honing what you need to do in the course of a of a trial. Yeah, it's a great thing. It, it, it it's also very nice uh, having somebody effectively saying, "Yep, yeah, you're actually quite good at this job." Because we go all around a lot of our time, yeah, plowing yeah. our own furrow. And you know, you you think, well, I must be doing all right because I've, I'm getting the work in. I'm getting the results. It's it. But nobody actually very Tells often you. will actually say to you. <laughs> That's, and it's one of the things I've always tried to do is if I see somebody get, do a, a good plea mitigation, yeah, I will say to them, that was good. You did yeah. well there. If somebody does well in a trial, I always try and say to them afterwards, well done. You did that really, really well. Because we don't get a lot of that sort of experience no. in our job. It's a very times singular job. Yes, yeah, no, there are no appraisals. No, no. no. And so taking silk is, it, it's nice because you get that moment where somebody says, actually... You obviously do know what you're doing. Uh, and you also get to wear the tights and the uh, britches on the day and oh, uh, the patent leather shoes. <laughs> and who, who could turn down that opportunity? Well, well, you do. We're all very inclusive yeah, here. <laughs> exactly. But it was... Uh, and so that... that yeah, that, 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 it, it, was a, it was a great moment when I got the email saying I'd got it and I could tell my loved ones that oh. I'd got it. And I went round to see my mum and dad that night who had no idea that I'd applied and... The moment I could sit in their front room and say to them, I've just found out in March I'm going to become a QC, that was really worth everything. Did you cry? I came pretty close. I did have a little moment when my voice broke and I think I had a little dampness around the edges of my eyes. I'm not actually admitting to crying. Oh, did your mum cry? Uh, Were they just overwhelmed? They were overwhelmed. Yeah, I can imagine. They were absolutely overwhelmed and... You know, and it, I, I wrote a, a blog about the the uh, taking silk, and uh, I read it. We're coming yeah, to your blogs, yeah. And <laughs> and I had a conversation with my mum and dad that night, sort of saying to them, "What do you think?" Because I didn't really know my grandparents um, because they were three of about four of them had died before I was born. But you know, I kind of know their story, and I, and I did know one pop. I, I, and you know, I, I, my granddad was a roofer, and my other granddad was a labourer from kind of Gorton, and I just would never have occurred to them that within a generation and a half, effectively, 
you know, they, they were amazed when people went to university and the idea that their grandson would be a Queen's Council would never have occurred to them. Never. That's, that's really quite some achievement, yeah. isn't it? Real achievement. Can I ask you then, uh, I'll come to blog in a moment then, just about diversity in the profession, social mobility, something that I'm passionate about. What, what do you think about diversity in our profession? I think sometimes we can perhaps over-punish ourselves and I think we should recognise the steps that we've taken. So my chambers, when I joined chambers, there was about 30 of us and there were three or four women in chambers, mm. which is ridiculously low. Absolutely. And um, people in chambers used to say to me, we don't have a problem recruiting women in our chambers. Look at our chambers. Caroline Swift and Janet Smith, who went on to the High Court bench, yeah. had been in our chambers which I think some people used to wear as kind of like a badge of our diversity. And I used to think to myself, no, that means we'll take on blokes who aren't good enough to be a high court judge, but we'll take on women only if they prove themselves to be truly, truly exceptional. And I used to think that, that that's not that's not an indicator of diversity. That's an indicator, in fact, of the, the, the opposite. Yeah. But now, you know, kind of me and below, Chambers is 50-50. It, 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 the recruitment has been very, very balanced, and we introduced things like blind marking of application forms before a lot of people did. Yeah. And we took real efforts to make sure we leveled a playing field. But there are still problems at the bar. Um, the issue of retention of women is something which we need to get much, much better at. But we can't do it on our own. No. Frankly, the judiciary will need to play a huge part in that. Because Why do you lot, say that? Because a lot of retention, particularly at the criminal bar, mm. is about things like listing practices. Absolutely. And if the judiciary don't sort it out, we can't sort it out on our on our own. So there has to be support for women in the profession. There has to be support for returning to work after maternity. There has to be a real sense in a chambers. I mean, I, I'm completely aware of you see a big many defendant case. If it's drugs or gangs, it'll all be boys. Yeah, or one woman, as yeah. I, I often find, yeah. if it's me. Yeah, uh, and it, you'll look in the courtroom, and you'll think there's twelve defendants here, and yet yeah, you're right. There might be one out of eleven. One out of twelve will be a female. See a sex case, and usually there's a woman involved in a sex case. Yeah. And there's a real perception of guns, drugs, gangs, fraud is boys' work and sex cases is girls' work. And I think in that there's a certain inverse snobbery that fraud work is quite often seen as better, more complicated, more difficult, and it is not. Mm. But there's a real, I think, whether it's conscious or unconscious, there's a, a a a way that the work is distributed, whether it be through solicitors or clerks, which is which involves a bias, yeah. and the bar has got to 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 really do all it can to even out that bias. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But also, though, we need to deal with the fact that just back on diversity, there is a notable lack of black. An Afro-Caribbean barrister. Absolutely. Um, your chambers is better. I have friends of, who are in your chambers. But but it, it's true, isn't it? Um, how do you think we can improve that? Is that through social mobility or access to the profession? 
There's no quick fix to that now. It's got to be a long-term thing. And I think one of the principal things is, one of, the, one of the mistakes I made in many ways was I was incredibly naive. I never did a mini pupillage. I didn't have much in the way of work experience. But the one advantage it gave me was I didn't particularly realise that despite what my teacher told me that boys from this school don't become barristers, I didn't realise that boys from this school didn't become barristers. And actually, I thought he was just being daft. I didn't realise it was a thing. Yeah, And it was only when I was perhaps coming to the end of university and I'd already set my heart on it and I'd set my path that I actually went to the inns and I met a lot of people and I began to realise that it was an Oxbridge-dominated thing and there weren't actually going to be that many people from a comprehensive school. Now, because the law is so much a part of everybody's lives, you know, it's, it makes great stuff of TV dramas, etc. Yeah. There's almost a way in which the law has become more open so people know more about it slightly more reinforces the it's all white middle class blokes yeah so when you look at the supreme court you've got brenda hale there who would be a fantastic role model for anybody but if you look around the supreme court at the um the recent litigation over the prorogation of parliament yeah all the advocates all you've got you've, you've got three women who were the Supreme Justices, but then everything else is very white, very male, and probably looking into their backgrounds, very Oxbridge. Yeah. And I think it's it's going to be quite important from this point on for the bar to go out there and to say to people who are seven, eight, nine, ten years of age, you're going to need to have two things to come to the bar. You need to have ability and the desire to do it. And if you have both of those... The colour of your skin, your religion, your gender, the school you went to, your ability to pay, those things should not matter. Absolutely. And so we've got to get that message out there to people so they know they've got access to the profession and then we've got to take the steps to make sure that that's true. Yes. And so that people without money can have a route into the bar. People who um, come from a lower socioeconomic background can have a route into the into the bar, and that people have both the safety of the knowledge that they will not be held back by who they are, what their accent is, and they'll also... Who uh, they know, the colour of their skin. Uh, but the, the, they'll also have the support there. And so it goes back again to to women coming to the criminal bar. Yeah. They've got to know that there's a there's a path through the profession which means it's as open to them as as it is to a man. Absolutely. That's actually very well put there, Jamie. You've become deputy head of your chambers, is that yeah. right? Um, uh, don't say it like that. Many would say, why would you want to do that for? But it seems to me part of what you're talking about, about access to profession, are they some of the reasons why you've become deputy head? Yeah. Uh, and um, you can really shape. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I um, I was head of the People's Intelligence Committee a few years ago and I actually took it on for a second time for the reasons that I'd... I, I, I stood at a, a bar event and looked around the room and I thought, we're still very white. So, <laughs> we I still, think that all the time. <laughs> we are still very, very white. And, uh, uh, and I thought... And so, male. Yeah, and I thought, I thought to myself, oh, well, I'm not going to change that in a year, no. but there are ways in which we can change it in 20 years and, and the difference can be made. Uh, and the Deputy Head of Chambers thing is... I'm quite soppy about my chambers. I'm a great believer in 
Chambers is obviously a, a mechanism where people get representation, etc. It's a business. But for me, also, Chambers is a family. And it is all about caring for the business and the family. Mm-hmm. And people get in to Chambers. Um, some people are more involved. Some people are less involved. I've always been quite involved because it means something to me. And I want people in Chambers to obviously have successful careers, to obviously have opportunity available to them, but also to be happy in Chambers, it to be a good place to base your practice from. Uh, And so when I was asked if I'd be deputy head of Chambers, yeah, I had a moment where I slightly probably raised my eyes to the ceiling and thought, oh, what am I getting myself into? But at the end of the day, somebody's got to, it's not just somebody's got to do it, but somebody has got to do it. And hopefully do something to shape what Chambers carries on being, which is part business, part family. Yeah, well, and the profession. Uh, You know, you've got a real opportunity to see, to change the profession, well, shape the profession. Um, Now, I want to just move on and deal with um, uh, social media, your blog and um, your Twitter followers. So you're one of the few barristers and highly thought of with a a Twitter account, which has got over 8,000 followers, I think. And uh, not the Jamie Hamilton, who I think is a barber. That's a different person in my yeah. research. Yeah. Uh, but your your Twitter account is called A View from the North. And I just wanted for you just to just tell us how you got into blogging, because you also write a blog. I've always been quite active in particularly relation to things with the, the circuit, first of all, but then particularly with the, the, the circuit's response to fee changes always been quite vocal about it i've been on various committees yeah uh, and when the most recent and i say kind of it's one of the many things we can blame chris grading for is my social media presence um because when we had the the transforming justice uh, i wrote a blog that i'd intended to post on the cba's the criminal bar association, criminal bar, criminal yes. bar association's yeah. blog and for whatever reason it didn't quite fit in with what the, the criminal bar association wanted to do at the time so I'd written this blog, and it wasn't going to get published on theirs, and that's why I started my WordPress blog, because I thought, well, I've written it. Yeah. I may as well put it out there. Mm. And having had no real inkling that this was going to be something that I was had any interest in at all, I became a little bit addicted to it. And I, I like... the Writing the blog is one of the best things I've done in my career. I've really enjoyed writing the blog. The opportunity it's get, given me to tell a story, which is what an advocate's being about, yeah. um, just doing it a slightly different way. And then the Twitter, at the time, I, I was on Twitter, but I was on Twitter because I'm also the captain of a cricket team called the Gentleman Gardeners, and we had a, a Twitter account. <laughs> and I, I discovered that you could post your blogs to Twitter. So I posted some blogs about the law to a Twitter account that was mainly about really bad <laughs> cricket. And I did think it was a bit... Um, a bit mean on the followers who were there for the bad cricket to have to also listen to me whinging about the state of the the law. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, that's how I I ended up starting my own Twitter account, View from the North. And Twitter, I think, is absolutely marvellous. I mean, it's got its bad sides to it. Yeah. But it is absolutely brilliant. And when people sort of talk about career highs, undoubtedly my career highs were uh, involved... Tanita Tickerham and uh, Jackie Abbott, who are two of my favourite singers, they both followed me on Twitter oh and goodness. I punched the air. 
And they still follow They still follow me. (laughs) They might not do for much longer, but they still do follow me. I I check in from time to time to make sure they are still there. We'll tag them when we release this podcast. (laughs) Um, So, Jamie, can I ask you about what you do for well-being? You mentioned cricket before. Our job is incredibly stressful. I wouldn't say more so the criminal bar, but mainly because of the type of work we're dealing with. What do you do? Well-being is so important now. The Bar Council is talking about it. We women in law have frequent events on well-being and wellness. And I just wonder what you do as a let out or what you do to relax if ever there is an opportunity, bar cricket. Yeah, I mean, I, I am relatively fortunate that I am... Perhaps laid back is the wrong word, but I'm 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 relatively good. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about work. I've always been very good at stopping thinking about work, so I I, I, do, I am able to switch off, and I just have always been able to. How how do you do that? Well, I, I, Many I, I, of I, us find it hard. Yeah, I, I, do, I do a lot. I've always done a lot. I mean, looking at me now, you wouldn't necessarily believe it, but get, you know, exercise and going to the gym. Unfortunately, at the moment, I'm injured. So thank. Goodness, this is a podcast and people can actually see me. Uh, but, <laughs> we'll release the photographs. Yeah, don't, don't, don't show the photographs. Uh, but I, uh, yeah, and so, so doing something, you know, there was a period of time when I, I did a lot of running and I'd do the occasional half marathon stuff. And going out for a run mm. was a great way of switching off. I, you know, frankly, it would hurt so much, the running, that you couldn't think about work. And so I used to do a, a lot of exercise. And also music. I love listening to music. And if I listen to music, so the car's a great place for me to to switch off from work. I actually enjoy the commute home. Yeah. You know, I I quite like a a long car journey. And if it's not listening to music, it's listening to the test match. So when I was a junior, I used to enjoy being sent up to Carlisle for one mention because it meant I could drive up there at 10.30 in the morning, do my one mention at 10.30 and then spend most of the day Hiding from the clerks, driving back along the M6 really slowly in my Astra, listening to the to the test match, um, and so it's just finding things that you enjoy and then making time in your life to do them, yeah. and that's the big thing. And that's where so many people fall down, yeah. is that they do not make the time. And so I had a rule which I've broken more recently, which was never work on a Saturday. I would never, uh, no matter if it meant I worked. 12 hours on a Sunday, you always had to have one day in the week where you did not work. And it doesn't matter if you spent the day watching a film, doing nothing, just a day where you didn't do something, creating time for yourself and hopefully doing something in, in it which you enjoy yeah. is absolutely crucial. Hmm. And you've got a little dog, haven't you? I have, yeah. <laughs> Taking her for a walk probably these days replaces... The running. And, the running. And, yeah, and, you know, it is, it's great. Taking the dog out for a walk, uh, 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 the, the great time to take the dog out, my favourite time taking the dog out for a walk is before court in the morning. Mm. Last thing I do before I leave the house is even if it's just 10 minutes round the block, take the dog out round the block, set yourself up for the day. And you, you do things that you, you don't ordinarily do it. You, you make time because you've got a dog. Mm. You've got to make time to take her for a walk. And taking the dog for a walk on a beautiful crisp winter's morning even if it's still dark even you just made yourself a little bit of time you and the dog it's not work and great opportunity to think about cases though yeah sometimes Mm. yeah yeah so jamie i want to ask you about recently you uh, were quoted in the media 
for saying it was appalling for work experiences to be unpaid and it was plainly wrong. Now, I may have quoted that slightly wrongly there. And then that got you to offer two weeks of paid work experience with you, which was something personally that you've organised. Can you tell us about how that's come about? Because I think we in the profession really applaud it and we hope that more people will do it. But how did that happen? Because it arose out of a chambers in London. Yeah, I, I, on Twitter, um, I had, on two occasions actually, in, in connection with a, a chambers in London and a, and a firm in London, I had been critical of the fact that they were offering unpaid internships. And I, I just, I have an innate sense that unpaid internships are wrong. Yes, they are. A, a little bit of work experience, a day here, that's something different. But... Uh, Unpaid internships where somebody is giving the fruits of their labour for nothing and effectively the employer is taking advantage of their desire to get experience to get somebody to do something for free is, and you're quite right with your quote, plain wrong. Yeah. It just is. It is unfair uh, and it also is, I think, a handbrake on diversity because the number of people that can then gain that experience is going to be very limited. If you're offering three months unpaid work in London, seriously, who can afford to do that? And exactly. It, it, it's brilliant if you're if you're able to afford to do it. It's brilliant, frankly, if you've managed to work and save up money to be able to do that because you want that on your CV. But there are other people for whom that opportunity is not going to be available. And it goes um, back to the the low economic background yeah, point you were making, and and their ability, their ability to get a CV which gets them in the door to get the interview for the pupillage, is significantly diminished. Having critical, and been very critical of that, and formed a very definite view it was wrong, I was perhaps on a walk with the dog, I think it was, and I thought to myself, actually, it's no good just being somebody that complains about what other people are doing. Yeah, yeah. And I got into a, a bit of a discussion with another barrister on Twitter who... They were making the case that it was something that was, it was fine. Um, and it was during that discussion and then thinking about it that weekend, I thought, well, actually, it's one thing to complain, actually do something about it. Provide the opportunity for somebody who wouldn't be able to have the half a dozen mini pupillages, et cetera, on their CV and provide them with a, with a one-stop They'll get lots of experience. It will give them lots to talk about in interview. It will be a process where they can talk about the things that they did in order to secure the pupillage or the, the internship, and they're getting money. Yeah. And they can afford to spend two weeks doing it. Uh, and it was well-received, and it was, you know, it's, it's, it was very good. So Nick Clark, a fellow criminal silk in my chambers, immediately said to me, I'm in for the same. I'll put the money up. They can spend two weeks being supervised by me. Chloe Ashley, who is a barrister junior in Birmingham, she said to me, I, I wish I could afford to put the money up, but you've got my time. Somebody else said, I haven't really got the time, but I can put the money up. So yeah. putting those three things together. Great. Three internships. Uh, and the response has been very positive from students. I ended up having to read 210, 215 applications and I interviewed 11, um, and they were all fabulous and all well-deserving. And an interesting thing about it, which I, I hadn't really... and you, well, I've had people from all sorts of backgrounds. Yeah, good. All sorts of responses. 
And very interestingly, one area that I hadn't really factored into it, and more than one person who made the shortlist was from this background of women yeah. who have had career breaks. Career break. Yeah. And in their maybe late 30s, early 40s, have said, Well, I've now raised my children. I now want to, to embark upon the career that perhaps I would have embarked upon differently yeah. if opportunities had been available to, back to me when I was in my 20s, early 30s. And so quite a lot of uh, women who... Who are returners, effectively. Who are effective returners, but yeah. setting out at maybe the age of 37, 38 on a law degree and are saying, effectively, I've still got caring responsibilities. I've still got things... I can't be every holiday doing a mini pupillage here and there. You know, it's, it's maybe I've been able to come back to full-time education myself because my children are in full-time education. But that means come the October half term, yeah. I can't be doing a week's mini pupillage somewhere. And the internship gets, gives me the opportunity of two weeks paid, which helps, but also so they're, they're going to do an advocacy exercise. They're going to come with at least three areas of Chambers' work. So they'll my colleagues in Chambers who support it will be taking people to court with them. Local judges are taking them for a day. So the marshalling kind of element of, of their local solicitors have also said they'll take them for a day. And certainly with the interns that are helping with me, a recruitment, Tim Collins, who helped me with my silks application, he is going to give them a little CV clinic over Skype. So Fantastic. lots of people, and that's the idea is to, so it's not just two weeks of following me around and going and yeah. seeing the case and kind of... Making the tea. But yeah, well, yeah, and, and that can happen. And, and so I want it to be more than work experience. I'm not going to expect them to do any work for me. No, but you want it to be meaningful. But I want it to be meaningful. I want them to get experience from it and give them something to talk about in interview. And then uh, it's up to them. They've that, got the design, the ability. That's Let fantastic. Them fantastic. Um, and also I saw that you've got the secret barrister who's going to come on this podcast yeah. anonymously to give copies of his or her book absolutely, um, to uh, the applicants, yeah. perhaps those who didn't um, make yeah, it. So, the, 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 all 11 who um, ended up on the shortlist, and in fact, it, it, I've been contacting them all today. So um, we've identified the three who are going to become doing the, the internships with Nick, Chloe and myself. The other eight who haven't been successful in getting that, um, everybody on the shortlist is getting a signed copy of Secret Barrister's book. Brilliant. Uh, which I'm very grateful to the Secret Barrister for. I've got them a copy of uh, a Rumpole book, because every barrister needs to need a Rumpole oh, book. Oh, that's, that's why I came to the bar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also, in fact, and I, I wish in some ways I could do more, but so all of them made this shortlist, so the, the other eight that aren't doing an intern, they're all going to do, well, I've offered them all, a one-day work experience in which I will pay their expenses. So wherever they are in the country. Yeah. So that they... they at least can get some experience. And again, it's not going to be that they can't afford to do it because they can't afford to travel. They can come to Manchester or I can arrange through friends and colleagues somewhere local to them and I'll pay their expenses for it. Fantastic. Well, if you're a woman in law listener, you're listening and you can assist Jamie, please get in touch via the usual email to us. And the other thing is, it's not going to be one-off. I'm going to do it again. Fantastic. It's not just this one. Uh, that's so good, Jamie, because it, what a difference that you actually are making um, by not just moaning, um, but taking positive action. Um, just before we finish, we always ask, 
Do you have a favourite fictional lawyer? Well, having just talked about Rumpole, oh. it would be too much of a cliche. And there, there, there was there is a temptation to kind of say, well, it's going to be Rumpole, because I do love the Rumpole books. And my chambers in my first six in London, one Dr Johnson's, was in fact John Mortimer's set. So, was it? Yeah, so, so if you look at my Twitter page, my avatar, my photograph, it's me on the day of taking silk next to the Rumpole name board, because the yes. Rumpole name board used to be up in chambers and I tracked it down to the chambers in London. They very kindly let me pop in and just have my photograph taken by the board. But in fact, it's got to be Vinnie Gambini, my cousin Vinnie. <laughs> it's a brilliant film. If anybody's not watched it, stop listening to this podcast. Go and watch it. <laughs> it's funny and it really is genuinely, genuinely very funny. Uh, has a fantastically strong female character in it as well, Marissa Tomai. Yes, I um, remember. But in fact, when it boils down to it, there are great lessons for the aspiring advocate in it. It's about how to stand up for yourself and your client in front of a judge, how to turn around a hostile environment when it comes to the judge, how to get the judge on your side by the end of the case, how quite a lot of the cross-examination is actually... I mean, it's, it's obviously vaguely ridiculous, but it's it, quite a lot of it is... The foundations are in some pretty solid advice for the advocate about setting up the ultimate question and not springing the trap too early. There are some <laughs> good lessons to learn in there. Uh, and also, don't want to bang on about it, but, you know, Vinnie Gambini is a lawyer with the wrong accent in the wrong courtroom and he shows it can be done. And if that's not a lesson <laughs> for the bar and a lesson about diversity, I don't know what is. So, yeah, it's Vinnie Gambini. Crikey, I think we might have to go back to Alan Mobile. <laughs> Alan Mobile, also very good. <laughs> well, you're only allowed one. Um, can I ask you then about some of your favourite books, um, or just at least one? We always ask everybody, that, well, I always ask everybody, it's my podcast. Uh, not a legal, in any way, text. I mean, I love John Irving. I was introduced at Aberystwyth by a very good friend of mine, uh, who was an American student who was there for a year, who I always thought got the very rough end of the deal, because they'd had a kind of transfer between California and Aberystwyth. And so some Aberystwyth <laughs> students got to go to LA and some LA students got to come to Aberystwyth. Uh, but Chris introduced me to John Irving and I read uh, The World According to Garp and I could pick probably five John Irving books and make a case for why they're my favourite. But I mean, The Prayer for Own Meaning is a truly wonderful novel. Anybody needs something to read on their holiday. It's quite a long read. But it's a fantastic, fantastic story. And um, What's it about? Actually, don't ruin it to our no. book club. We have a book club, so well, um, maybe just a summary. A summary, it, it's, it's about a boy who is different and believes himself to be different, and it's all themes of religion and all sorts of different things, and it, it's a book that's written over a very long period of time. But the main thing about it is John Irving is possessed of a wonderful imagination, as most authors are. But it's also, I think it's one of the biggest skills of the advocate. You've got to have a very, very good imagination. And if my imagination is the tenth of what John Irving's is, and I've got no idea how he comes up with things like a prayer for Armenian, just the way that he describes the character is amazing. He's got a voice. He's got a stature. Armenian is a remarkable literary figure. But we all have it in us to do that. When we yeah. dream, you dream in amazing detail, giving voices and faces to people you have never, ever met. And sometimes that's what you're doing. You're giving voices and faces to situations you yourself have not experienced and your imagination 
allows you to have the empathy required to either deal with the client, prepare your cross-examination. So I think imagination is an underrated skill of the advocate, uh, and John Irving has it in spades. Wow. Thank you. Um, Jamie, one last question. What do you see as the biggest threat to legal aid, access to justice? I mean, the obvious answer is money and the constant drive by politicians to do the simple thing of cutting fees and availability. But, and this is where huge kudos has got to go to people like the secret barrister. Yeah. In order to get the politicians to invest in it, we've got to always explain to the public why legal aid is important, why access to justice for everybody is important. And people get it. They don't get it necessarily when they're having the headlines screamed at them about hundreds of thousands of pounds either paid to a lawyer or paid in legal aid on behalf of somebody who's committed a heinous and terrible crime. But when you actually talk to people about the law, they're interested in it. They actually quite quickly realise that it's so much a part of the thread and the fabric of civic life. And so when anything anything ever goes wrong, quite soon there's a call for an inquiry. Quite soon there's a call for justice to be done and to be seen to be done. And that requires, and particularly in the criminal sphere, an even contest between lawyers of matching ability, irrespective of who you are. So sadly... The case against the Supreme Court, in the Supreme Court against the prorogation of Parliament, could only be brought by people of means. Yes. But that's the sort of case that should be able to be brought by... Anybody. The bloke that works down the road. The woman who is taking her kids to school but is interested and bothered about what is happening. And uh, the availability of justice to only people who can afford it have the means for it. That's wrong. Justice is such an important part. And yeah, I know it has to have its limitations, but it's got to be more of a principle than a budget exercise. Here, here. Have you thought about politics? No. <laughs> Apart from voting, that's what I always yeah. say. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. Jamie Hamilton, thank you, QC. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for coming on the Talking Law podcast. We've really enjoyed um, interviewing you. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. I'm Sally Penny. Thank you again for listening to Talking Law. Do let us know what you think and perhaps who you would like to hear on future episodes by leaving us a comment wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you subscribe, you won't miss an episode. This has been a What Goes On media production for Women in the Law UK. Do check in and see what we're up to at womeninthelawuk.com. See you then. Bye-bye.